there! Thanks for listening to the Elevate Christian Church podcast. We exist as a church to connect people with God and each other. Today's message comes to us from our lead minister and preacher, Kevin Barton. We hope this inspires you, grows you, and challenges you in your faith and your walk with Jesus. Enjoy! Um, today, we are going to look at a story uh, of Jesus, a story that Jesus told. Uh, and what I want to do, it's, it's called the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And what I want to do, uh, if you're a note taker, this might aggravate you a little bit, is I want to read the entire text. And then like, so we can kind of see the context and everything that's going on in the text. And then after we read it once, we'll kind of walk back through it and just kind of digest it bite by bite. So uh, if you have your Bibles, we're going to jump right in. It's Luke chapter 16, and we're going to be picking up in verse 19, and we're going to read all the way to verse 31. This is Jesus speaking. So Jesus says, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. This guy's in a, in a poor state here. And the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's side. And the rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being in torment, he lifted his eyes and saw Abraham far off with Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in the water to cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in, these, in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, Remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and Lazarus in the like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all of this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, well, I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if somebody should rise from the dead. So that's the story. That's the passage of Scripture that we want to land in this morning. Now, let me do something that I normally don't have to do before I preach. Uh, I want to give you a disclaimer, all right? Now, I want to give you a disclaimer, and I want to tell you that uh, we don't have to agree on everything. Like in matters of salvation, yeah, there's doctrinal issues that we have to agree on. But I think we have the freedom and the flexibility to kind of develop some of our own thoughts and our, and our, and our own opinions. So everybody doesn't have to agree. So I would say it this way. You ever notice that if you're like on a road 
Uh, maybe it's a, just a little two-lane road and there's a really slow person in front of you and you come up on them. That person is always an idiot, right? Like, what is this idiot doing? I'm trying to get, yeah, well, come on. All right. Or if you're on that same road and somebody's on your bumper and they're kind of pushing you up the road, that person is a moron. All right, so we, we, an idiot and a moron because they're not driving the speed that you think they should be driving. All right, so we are living in a culture today that says, hey, if you don't agree with me, you're my enemy. And over stupid things, things that don't matter. And I don't want us to, to, to get into that this morning. Uh, you may not agree with my take on this passage of Scripture that doesn't make you an idiot, and it certainly doesn't make me a moron. So I say that because there's some debate amongst prominent scholars over this passage of Scripture, right? And a lot of the, the, a lot of the debate starts with, is this a parable? Is this a, a made-up story that you know, Jesus would often tell these stories, these earthly stories, and then imply these heavenly meetings to them? Is this one of those parables, or is this a literal true story? Is there a man named Lazarus in paradise, in Abraham's bosom? Is there this rich man in Hades, or is this just a parable? And so what I feel is the proper thing to do real quick, and I want to spend a lot of time on it, is give you the argument for both sides and let you de to decide which, whether you think this is a parable or you think this is a real-life uh, real story. So those who argue that, hey, this is a, is a parable, uh, they, would, they would point your attention to Luke 15, the chapter before. The entire chapter is, is a parable about lost things. Right, So you've got the lost coin, the lost sheep, the lost son, and it's this parable. When chapter 16, the chapter that we're in, opens up, there's another parable about uh, money management. Um, and then there's this small dialogue between Jesus and the Pharisees. And then you jump right back into this. And so they say, well, this is just kind of in a list of, of parables. And, the, and so this is one of those parables. And they would make the point that, hey, Jesus taught often this way. He, he, he made these analogies. He was, a, he was a great teacher. And so this is just another great teaching that is a parable. All right. So that's the argument for, yes, it is. Now there's this other argument that, no, this isn't. This is a literal rich man and a, and a man named Lazarus. And so the arguments that this is not a parable uh, are, number one, uh, that the story is never called a parable. Uh, many, of other, many other of Jesus' stories are designated as parables, the writer will say, and Jesus taught in parables. Okay, so that's the, the first argument. The second argument, which I think is a little stronger, is that if you are familiar with the parables of Jesus, he never uses anybody's name, right? It's always uh, a woman was you know, lost a coin, or a farmer went to sow, or a man, right? And it's just this ambiguous, no, no names. Well, in, in this account, uh, you have names mentioned, and there are three of them. You've got Lazarus, you've got Abraham, and you've got Moses. And so they say it doesn't fit into the construction of, of maybe what a parable would, would be. And then, and then the third reason that uh, people say this isn't a parable is because this particular story doesn't seem to fit the definition of a parable. Uh, a definition of a parable, if you remember, uh, if you grew up in the church, uh, a parable is a earthly story with a heavenly meaning. All right, the story of the rich man and Lazarus presents this spiritual truth directly. 
and there's no earthly metaphor. So the setting for most of the story is the afterlife as opposed to parables which unfold in earthly contexts. So in my opinion, and you don't have to agree, and again, you're not an idiot and I'm not a moron, okay? Uh, In my opinion, this is not a parable but I interpret it as a real-life story that Jesus is telling uh, about somebody. Now, whether you believe it's a parable or you believe it's a literal story, it's pretty much a moot point because we can still arrive at the same conclusion. Uh, Let me explain to you why Jesus uses this graphic story. Because this is kind of a scary, horrific story about being in flames and torment, right? So, So why is Jesus... Uh, telling this story or this real-life event, or in your mind, if, it, if it's a parable. Um, when Luke 16 starts, Jesus tells a parable of the um, unrighteous steward, and it's, it's all about money management and, and this, that, and the other. And, and Jesus ends by saying this, you cannot serve both God and money. Okay. Now, what happens is, is that the Pharisees mock Jesus. And Jesus has this, because he's God, has this uncanny ability to read people's minds, <laughs> which puts him at an extreme advantage, I would, I would think. Um, and so I think this is a response to what's going on. Now, let me show you what's going on. We're just going to back up a few verses up to ver- verse 14. This is after Jesus says, you cannot serve both God and money. And Jesus is trying to drive the point of, of money is not a bad thing. It's the love of money. It's what it can do to your heart. And this, this whole story is about the heart. But, but look at verses 14 and 15. Uh, the Pharisees, and this should be an indication right there, who were lovers of money heard all of these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. And so Jesus is is addressing this. He's addressing this heart issue, particularly verse 15, but God knows your hearts, right? So you could roll into this church and you could be dressed to the nines and you could say all the right things. God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. Hey, brother, hey, sister. And everyone could look at you and say, wow, that guy or wow, that woman, she has got the, he or she's got the spirit of God. But we don't know what's going on in people's hearts. But Jesus does. And Jesus did here. So uh, allow me to do something that I don't normally do. Uh, I, so I don't view this as a parable. I view this as a real-life event. So uh, I'm going to just ask you to use your imagination for a minute, okay? Because here's what I imagine. Because Jesus is always a million steps ahead of his enemies, uh, particularly the Pharisees. Uh, I, I'm going to, I imagine that the story that Jesus is telling is about another Pharisee. And I'm going to call him Phil. Phil the Pharisee, all right? And I and I just just as in my imagination that Phil died. Everyone knew he oh, he was a great Pharisee. But as Jesus begins to tell this story, they begin to scratch their heads and they're like, you know, Phil used to come into the temple every day griping about this beggar at his gate. He I think he called him Lazarus, and he just went on and on and on. A guy won't leave him alone. And, and so I just imagine Jesus kind of with a wry smile, kind of unpacking that. I'm not saying that's what happened, but that's that makes me feel good. All right, so, all right, so, 
The, the other thing I just want to hit real quickly, just to eliminate any bad theology, is that this story is not just about rich and poor people, right? I think I've seen this text misused a little bit, and I've seen it misused in this vein. Rich people go to hell, and poor people go to heaven. They go to hell because they're rich, and they go to hell before they're, because they're poor. And so we kind of paint this picture of Jesus is against the wealthy. And Jesus is for the poor. Now, Jesus, it doesn't matter. The only thing Jesus is interested in is what's going on in our heart. Because just using this passage to, to make you feel bad if you own a boat or you have a, a lake house or, or you go on vacation more than I do, I don't think that's the essence of this passage at all because it would present a huge problem. The early church uh, father Augustine noted long ago that poor, it is poor Lazarus that is carried to the side of wealthy Abraham. Uh, when you study the Bible, Abraham was one of the wealthiest men who ever walked the face of the earth. And so if wealth alone were, were, determines our fate, then Abraham should be in Hades right along with the rich man. You following that? Okay. I think the key is back up in verse 15, but God knows your hearts. And so this isn't a money problem. It's a matter of the heart. It's a Matthew 6 problem where Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So with that in mind, I want to walk back through this kind of bite by bite. And I promise you, I won't keep you too much longer. Um, so let's just go right back through it real quick. Back to verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen who feasted, no, I love this word, sumptuously every day. Now, I, I want to admit to you, I feasted sumptuously yesterday. Uh, the uh, the Alabama-Tennessee game was on, and uh, I'm just going to let you all know I've jumped ship from Virginia because they can't win any football games, and so I'm a volunteer now. Uh, yes, yes, I love, and so I was pulling for Tennessee, and he was pulling for Alabama. My father-in-law was pulling for Alabama, but he texted me in the morning, and he said, hey, I'm going to cook two racks of ribs, uh, a uh, pastrami, or no, not a pastrami, whatever you make a, a Reuben with, that, that kind of meat. And I'm also going to make some smoked sausage. So he, it was like this meat bonanza. And I went up there and watched football, and I ate sumptuously. Now, I don't get to eat that way every day, uh, but yesterday was a good day. But when you look at the text, look how it opens up. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple. This guy is introduced as one who literally wears his wealth on his sleeve. He was clothed with purple and fine linen. And he feels the least amount of hunger pain in the world because he feasts every day. So remember I said, Phil the Pharisee, just humor me. When you begin to go back in the Old Testament and you study uh, kind of the, the Pharisees of the New Testament, here's what you find. Priests and Pharisees had a lot of purple in their garments. Uh, they were instructed to have fine garments, and they, were, they had purple and dark blue and royal blue in their garments. So uh, this is the picture I get that maybe the rich man Jesus is talking about it was a Pharisee. And Pharisees dressed nice. You knew who they were. You heard them coming because they had all these little things that jingled and jangled when they came. You smelled them. 
because they put on way too much cologne, right? They, 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 you knew who they were, and they wanted you to know who you were. And the other thing is it's not like poor, broken missionary or poor, broken preacher. It, the, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were uber-wealthy, they were high society people, okay? So we could very well be talking about this. That's just uh, m- my theory. Look at verse 20. So that's the rich man. Now we get introduced to Lazarus. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. So Lazarus is the exact opposite. We're told that he is a beggar sitting outside of of a gate. We're told that he is covered with sores. Um, I believe that it's probably leprosy or some other skin disease. It's it's just so bad and and he he can't be in society. He's got to stay outside and beg. And and so even the dogs are coming to, to lick his sores. And it says that he desired to eat what fell from the rich man's table. And so uh, let me just paint a picture for for you. Um, In that society, the the uber wealthy, uh, they needed to wipe their hands when they got done eating. And uh, there was no such thing as bounty paper towels or brawny or napkins, right? And so they have these these fine garments on that they eat, and you don't want to wipe your hands on your garments. And so um, the, the, the uber wealthy were able to take old bread, like stale bread, moldy bread. And believe it or not, this bread does have a little mold on it. Um, we had a sub night at, at my, my house the other night, and somebody didn't eat their sub, and so it's got a little mold on it. Um, but here's what they would do. They w- you would eat with your fingers, right? And you had, to, you had to wipe your hands with the grease and the meat, and so they would take a piece of stale bread, and they would break it, all right? And then they would use the bread. I'm going to make a huge mess. And they would, this is how they would wash their hands. This is how they would dry their hands, get that stuff off their hands, right? And so a servant would then come along and sweep these crumbs up that fell from the table, throw them outside. And here's what you have. You have Lazarus so desperate that he would be willing to eat this food uh, or this bread that was rubbed across another guy's dirty hands and that fell on the ground and might have mold in it. This is how desperate Lazarus was. He wanted what fell from his table. So we continue verse 22. Uh, The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. Now let me just make a note. I'll come back to it in a minute and we're going to spend the entire next week on it. Notice he wasn't carried to heaven here. He was carried to a place called Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried and in Hades being in torment. So he's not in hell, he's in Hades. Being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water to cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. Let me just go back and revisit something, those two things. Paradise or Abraham's side, uh, and Hades. Um, and we're, like I say, we're going to talk about this next week. And again, the disclaimer, if you don't agree, you're not an idiot and I'm not a moron. Um, but when a person dies, when you cease breathing, uh, you don't go directly to heaven. You go to Abraham's side or Abraham's bosom. 
Do you remember what Jesus said to the thief on the cross who believed in him right before he died? Today you will enter with me where? Paradise. It's the same word here. It's not heaven. So it seems that Abraham's bosom or paradise is this holding place for the dead, for saved, regenerated hearts. Because we know when Jesus comes back, our bodies are going to be raised, they're going to be reunited with our souls, and we're going to be new, and we're going to be glorious. But this is a, a, a holding place uh, for the dead, all right? And we'll talk about that in detail next week. Hades is also a holding place, but it's the other side for the unregenerated hearts. Remember the book of Revelation, what, G, what Jesus says at, in, the, in the end, that he will take death, and he will take Hades, and he will hurl it where? Into the abyss, into hell. So it seems that this whole category of people who die, uh, they're still in some, some kind of torment. They, they, they still are aware uh, that they're there, um, are going to be balled up and, and thrown into the pit uh, of hell. And so uh, these are not heaven, not hell. This is Abraham's side and Hades, and we will get into that in detail next week. But the thing I want you to note before we go any further is that this rich man's not a bad man. By all standards, we might say, oh, he's a pretty good guy. And that's the most dangerous doctrine the church is facing today. I'm a good guy. I, I, you know, my good outweighs my bad. It, you know, I'm, God's going to let me in. No, the, the Bible explicitly says that the only way to the Father is through the Son. It's through the blood of Jesus Christ. Being good enough is not good enough. This, was a, this wasn't a bad man. He called Abraham his father, showing his devotion to the Jewish faith. He had concern for his five brothers' eternal destiny. Hey, send somebody from the dead to talk to them so they don't end up here. So the rich man's problem wasn't that he was rich or that he was a bad guy. The rich man's problem is that he didn't repent of his sin, of squandering his riches on himself and begin, and begin to use them as God would have him do to make friends for eternity. And you don't have to be rich to have this philosophy, right? It's this meocentric, narcissistic philosophy. It's all about me. So I'll be friends with you if you can give me something. I'll date you if I can get something from you. I'll marry you, but what I'm going to get out of this? I'll work here, but what's in it for me? I'll go to church here, but what are you going to do for me? And it's this me, 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 selfishness. See, it's not about money. It's about a heart issue. And so... When you begin to look and try to find, well, what does this passage, passage teach us? There, there's a couple things. The first thing I think it teaches us is that there are only two destinies. There's eternal life or there's eternal death. That's it. There's, there's, there's no in-between. There's, there's only two destinies. Now, just, just in passing, I, I think it's very ironic that on the earth, Lazarus sat there and dreamed about moldy, greasy breadcrumbs that fell on the ground. He just wanted, to, just wanted one of those crumbs. But now in the afterlife, the rich man, he just wants one drop of water. Like Lazarus, I just want one crumb, but now it's, I just want one drop of water. Because this place, Hades, carries with it the same characteristics as hell. This is not a pleasant place. Listen, this is not a pleasant subject, talking about eternal punishment and agony. 
People don't like this, talking about torment. But I would love to steal a quote from R.C. Sproul. Here's what he says uh, in the doctrine of Hades and torment. He says, quote, The doctrine of eternal punishment in hell is not pleasant, but you cannot accept Jesus and reject hell because he taught it so plainly and so frequently. End of quote. You know what the fact of the matter is? The fact of the matter is that virtually every statement in the Bible concerning hell comes from the lips of Jesus Christ himself. And so we can't take Jesus seriously without also taking seriously what he said regarding eternal punishment. There is very little said about hell in the Old Testament. There is very little said about hell in the epistles. Most of it is all from Jesus. It's almost as if God decided that a teaching this frightening would, only, would not be received from anyone lesser than God's own son. And so it teaches us we have, two, we have a choice. We have two destinies. Look at verse 25 and 26. Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime you received good things, Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all of this, between us and you is a great chasm that's been fixed. And he's going to explain, they can't come over here, and we can't come over there. I mean, I'm Father Abraham. If anyone could walk across that chasm, it might, other than Jesus, it might be me. But nobody can go across that chasm. And so this teaches us this simple doctrine. We have a choice to make on this side of life. That when we die, our fate is sealed. The Bible does not teach the doctrine of purgatory. Uh, that is a man-made doctrine. Purgatory teaches that when a person dies, if they're not quite good enough to go to heaven, uh, that they're going to go to Hades and, or hell and that the fire is going to refine them and purge them and, and they're going to finally repent and then uh, they'll, go to, they'll go to heaven. But the Bible doesn't, that's a man-made theology. We just said there's a great chasm between the two. Someone once said there, uh, there are not unbelievers in hell. They just believed when it was too late. And I, th I think they're right. We've got to make this decision on this side of our lives. So look at verses 27 through 31 as we kind of wind this thing down a little bit. And he said, I beg you, Father, to send into my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, they'll repent. You know, it's kind of like that ghost of Christmas past. Like if a ghost appeared or someone from the dead, that would make them, that would make them believe. That would somehow transform their heart. Listen, dead people don't transform hearts. A risen Savior is what transforms a person's heart. And the only risen Savior is Jesus Christ. But he said, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Just bring them back from the dead. Surely they would believe. Now, what's interesting is we see a little foreshadowing here. Who's teaching this passage? Jesus. Remember, in church, if I ask you a question, just say Jesus. You'll be right. Jesus. And I think Jesus is giving us some foreshadowing with what's going to happen to his own resurrection, 
All right, so fast forward a little bit to Easter Sunday. Jesus was crucified, and he, he on Friday, was put in the grave. Sunday they go, and he's not there, and, and nobody can find him. Where is Jesus? And then all of a sudden, he begins to, for 40 days, systematically appear to people as the resurrected Jesus, okay? Including his 11 disciples, because he's down to 11 now, because Judas is gone, hung himself, right? Now, when he appears, this is... Right before, shortly before his ascension and this great commission where he says, go into all nations, you know, all that stuff. The 11 meet him. He's talking to his 11 uh, disciples or the 11 apostles in Matthew 28, 17. And I want you to see this. And when they saw him, they worshiped him. But some doubted. And what Jesus is saying is, listen, this is not about a ghost or a a dead man reappearing to you. This is about getting your heart right now. Now, the story ends with one final lesson. And if, if I were to have you walk away knowing anything from today, this would be the lesson right here. It's a long, it's a long point. It's my only point, maybe, is this. It is possible to be deceived about our eternal destiny by present outward appearances. Let me say that again. It is possible to be deceived about our eternal destiny by present outward appearances. And I think the key to understanding this whole passage of Scripture, whether you think it's a parable or a literal story, is is verse 16 where Jesus says, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. So I want you to think about this. In the eyes of the people of rich man and Lazarus in that time, the rich man was deemed successful, right? Look at this guy. Look at what he eats. Look, what he, look at what he wears. Look how, smell how he smells. He's just, he's dressed to, he is just, got it all together. Look at this guy over here begging for food, having dogs lick his store, his sores. He's a loser. And so the rich man lived well and enjoyed the finest things in life. And Lazarus was a miserable wretch with the dogs licking his sores. But the irony is this. Now Lazarus was eternally rich and the rich man was eternally bankrupt. You know, I find it interesting that Jesus chose to leave out the name of the rich man, but he used Lazarus's name. Now, scholars have sometimes called the rich man dives, which is the Latin word for rich man, but he's not given a name. And think about it. In this world, before they died, he was probably a well-known he was renowned for his wealth, maybe like Bill Gates or Elon Musk or, or, or anyone that you can think of. But nobody would have known Lazarus's name, much less cared about him. But in God's sight, the rich man is unnamed and this poor beggar is named. And here's why I want you to understand that. No matter who you are, where you've been, what you've done, how far you think you've ran from God. Friends, God 
knows your name. He knows how many hairs are on your head. He knows what scares you, what keeps you up. He knows what fills your heart with anxiety. He knows what fills your heart with joy. He knows you inside and out. Do you know what the name Lazarus means? I'd be impressed if he did. The name Lazarus means God has helped. God has helped. And truly, God helped him because he now came to salvation. And the point is, it's easy to be deceived by present outward appearances into thinking that you're someone else or you're better off than someone else because you have it all together. What matters is what's going on inside your heart. What matters is where are we laying up our riches? Where are we storing our treasures? What matters is, is that those who are without God are bankrupt in the worst sense of the word. So a Sunday school teacher uh, was teaching a group of fourth grade boys on the same story of the rich man and Lazarus. And he went through in great detail and he was teaching this. And he said to this group of fourth grade boys, he says, now, which would you rather be, boys, the rich man or Lazarus? And one boy, he raised his hand right away and he said, well, I'd like to be the rich man while I'm living and Lazarus when I die. And um, wouldn't we all, wouldn't we all, right? (laughs) But of course, it doesn't work that way. You can't live for selfish pleasures in this life, just disobeying God's word and expect to live with God in heaven when you die. But the good news is, when we repent of our sins and we live in obedience to Jesus Christ, we find great pleasure both here for our time on earth and through eternity, no matter what our earthly circumstances dictate. As Jesus said in Luke chapter 9, whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. This passage teaches us that there are two very different destinies that lie before us. And it teaches us that there's a great chasm fixed between the two. That the decision to follow Christ has to be made on this side of life. And so as your lead minister pastor, friend, counselor, I urge you to choose wisely. We hope you enjoyed listening to our podcast today. If you'd like to learn more about Elevate or partner with us in what God is doing here, check out our website at elevatecc.com. Until next time, God bless you and thanks again.